read the whole um, passage. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another goal shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our second reading will be from 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll read through to, um, from verse 1 through to verse 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you be believed. Here ends our reading. I'd like to invite Bill to come up and uh, bring us God's message. Enica suggested I move this forward a little bit, just for light, I think. Uh, Good morning, everyone, here at One Hope. Uh, It's good to be part of the congregation, and I I especially want to express my thanks to Scott for that ministry of song. I don't know uh, how it spoke to you, but it was like a ministry working through biblical truths from the beginning to the end, so it really ministered to me in song, and we pray now that God will minister through his spirit to us in his word. For those who might not know me all that well yet, my name is Bill Bosker and I'm married to Inika and we've been members here at One Hope for about a year and a little bit Um, and we came from Tasmania um, where we've been for 12 years and we've had a gospel ministry for many years and so I'm privileged to be able to bring God's word to you uh, this morning. 
Our text is actually coming from the next passage in 1 Corinthians 15, from verses 12 uh, through to 34. So uh, let's read this, but before we do, uh, I'd like to pray that um, God will help us to understand his word, and um, we'll then be able to see what he has to say to us today and what we can take into the world. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we want to say thank you that you are a God who is not only a living God, but a speaking God and an acting God, a God who acted in the past, a God who acts in the present, and a God who promises to act in the future. And the promises are as certain uh, as the work that you have already accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection and his ascension into glory and the sending of his spirit. And now we wait for his return. So, Father God, I pray that you would still our hearts, that you would help us to uh, concentrate and to think about the things that are on your heart that you want us to have in our hearts. And you can only do that through your Holy Spirit, but also through us who are willing listeners. So please do that, we pray, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the first slide could go up now just as a title slide. Thanks. Yep. So uh, let's read from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. Uh, my Bible's an NIV, so it's going to be a little bit different than your ESV. Um, Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ." We are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptised for the dead? 
If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So that's our, our reading for this morning. And the title, as you can see, is Our Strong Hope, the Resurrection from the Dead. And the next slide can go up as well. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, um, in choosing the subject this morning, I was thinking about uh, Glenn's message last week. And uh, Glenn led us in examining the things that we get anxious about and how our Lord speaks into that debilitating or potentially debilitating anxiety. Uh, Glenn shared with us about the past decade, a decade that left us reeling with outrage, anger, depression and hopelessness and in that world it still needs the gospel and it's a gospel that needs to be seen in us so that the world can see it as well. Uh, Glenn gave a few challenges but the one that resonated with me was that we can be a non-anxious presence in the world. I've been thinking about that, that we can be a non-anxious presence in the world. And I think one of the best ways we can be that non-anxious, non-anxious presence is to give people hope. To give people hope for the future, which actually impacts us today. Now, the text mentions uh, in verse uh, 5 that Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared to Cephas. That's, uh, his name is also Peter. And Peter actually wrote a letter uh, about the Christian hope. And he was writing to displaced followers of Jesus who were a minority in their culture. And that's a lot like us today. We are followers of Jesus we are a minority in our culture, and he was writing to that audience to say, you have a strong hope. And so I think that hope is a hope that we as God's people need to have define us. You know, we are defined by all sorts of things perhaps, but the one thing that needs to define us, according to this passage, is hope. And I find it interesting that the name of our church has got one hope, one hope, community church. So I want to talk to you about hope. And in this first section, I also want to uh, analyse our culture. Because if we're going to go into the world, we need to know what sort of culture we live in, belong to, and speak into. See, hope is not a feeling that we manufacture. Because feelings come and feelings go. 
I want to suggest to you from the text that a strong hope actually comes to us. It's not made in us, it comes to us. And it is anchored in the Lord's bodily resurrection from the dead. As God's people, we are messengers of life, but we are speaking into a culture of death. So when we're going to talk, about, talk to people about Jesus, we're going to talk about life. But I think we'll also have to deal with the subject of death because of our death culture. And so today's message, I trust, will equip us to talk about our strong hope in terms of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to rescue us from death. So let's observe our culture. The other week, uh, Enoch and I went to the Melbourne Museum. And I hadn't been there for many years, but it is a magnificent building. It is a fantastic place. And I think it's worth going there. But, you know, I also say this with a heavy heart. Because we spend quite a bit of time in the section where it, it talks about the origins of the earth and the universe. And we were walking past all these displays and it totally oozes of secular humanism. Everything you read about these things is oozing secular humanism. And I couldn't help but think, as I looked at these displays, that life... And the earth and the universe is an accident. An accident of time plus chance is what made it all come together. That, that's what these displays say. And I'm going to suggest to you that if it's all an accident of time plus chance, it does affect the way you look at hope. Our culture says that life is living it up because we are here today and we're gone tomorrow. We worship the good body as a culture, but we don't value life as a culture. Look at what abortion says, our view of abortion. Our culture says there's no value, no strong value to the unborn child because we can simply kill them. Our culture says yes to euthanasia because we don't value suffering. You see, as a culture, we, we don't do away with the pain so much as we do away with the body. That's ultimately what euthanasia is about. And so we're not a culture of life and hope. We're a culture of death and despair. And if I could think of a slogan that fits our culture, it would go like this. Enjoy it or end it. That's what our culture seems to say. Enjoy it or end it. And the gospel speaks life and hope into this culture. You see, you are not an accident. I mean, I need to hear a really big amen from that. You are not an accident. Do you agree with me? You are not an accident. You are made in the image of the Creator. And you were created with an amazing body and an investigating mind. A mind 
created to think God's thoughts after him. You have an everlasting God-breathed spirit in you that will never be extinguished. Have you thought about that? You have a God-given spirit in you that is everlasting, cannot be extinguished. And God's word says that he made everything beautiful in its time, including you. But Ecclesiastes 3 also says that God has set eternity in our hearts. Have you thought about that? That you are body and soul, and your soul is going to live forever. Our culture is a lot like first century Corinth. It devalues life and it devalues our physical bodies. Yes, we worship them when they're okay and looking good and doing everything, but when it's not, end it. Why is suicide so common in our culture and especially among young people? It's because death is seen as an exit. But the resurrection hope that the Bible speaks about tells us that there is life after death. Jesus died in his human body, but on the third day, by the creative power of God, Jesus rose again in his exalted human body. He dies in a human body, and he rose again in an exalted human body. Death has been conquered. As we sang, he has conquered the grave. We rejoice in that because life in Christ has won. So our true and everlasting hope is that in the resurrection of Jesus, we will live for eternity in our restored and exalted human bodies. That is a strong hope. In Christ's resurrection, you will be resurrected in an exalted body forever. That is our strong hope. And, and I'm going to suggest to you that having that hope actually has an impact on how you face the future, but also how you live today with energy and vitality. It's no wonder at the end of this magnificent 1 Corinthians 15 passage, Paul finishes in, in verse 58. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. Future hope impacts your present living. So that's been a, a large part of our introduction and I'm one third of the way through if you're counting. But as we observe our culture... I do want to ask this question. Is there life after death and does it matter? Is there life after death and does it matter? So when it comes to the end of life, does it matter what you believe about life after death? Because some people are going to tell you nothing. There's nothing. Death is the end. That's it. Other people say... It's the annihilation of the soul. You will be absorbed into nothingness. Others say, no, you'll be reincarnated into another life 
And the type of life you have, whether it's worse or better, will depend on how you lived. Reincarnation. But others say there is life after death and there is a resurrection of all the dead. So does it matter what you believe? Really? Does it matter what you believe? Or is it each to his own that you can all determine your own future? What's your belief? And how does it stack up against what others believe? More importantly, how does it compare with what God has said and revealed in his word? So I hope that this morning as we dig into the text, we'll get clarity about this. And what we'll see from God's word, and this is where church history is really good, what we see from the life and faith of the apostles and the early Christian church is that the resurrection is foundational to the gospel. If you take the resurrection out of the gospel, you don't have a gospel. Amen? Amen. You know, the 4th century Apostles' Creed was hammered out after 300 years of the church wrestling with what are the essential doctrines. 300 years of synods and discussions to, to work out what are the essentials, and they came up with 12. And can I tell you that two out of the 12, to show you the importance, talk about the resurrection. The first one says, on the third day he rose again from the dead, talking about Jesus. And Article 11 says, I believe in the resurrection of the body. That, that's the essentials of the Christian faith, and two of them are about the resurrection. So what does it say about the importance of the resurrection? Incredibly important. But what happened in Corinth and what is happening in our culture? See, in Corinth, Paul got some correspondence and then he has to write back to what's happening in between his visits. And he says that we can hear from the text that people actually believe that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. But their view of the body in Corinthian culture was so low or so indifferent that the idea of a bodily resurrection had no currency or it didn't rate as something important. So they exalted the spiritual, but the body was like a tent. You live in for a while, you pack it away, and you don't need it anymore, and that's the end of the body. That was what they were believing. Jesus died, but no resurrection. And Paul hears about this, and that's why he write, writes this letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, but he has to do it again in 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5. Now, by now, we're meant to be at slide 4, so can you flick through, please? So, the resurrection is a core gospel issue. Is it a core issue for you? Now, let's go to the next one. Okay, what if there is no resurrection from the dead? Paul commits a large part of this chapter to the question, what if there is no resurrection from the dead? Now, if you were Paul, how would you tackle the false teaching and thinking that there is no resurrection from the dead? I mean, Paul has gone to Corinth, he's preached, he's written letters... And now it looks like, what? Don't you get it? Have you forgotten what I preached about? So Paul could have said, 
look, I'm finished with you guys. You're a hopeless crowd. I'm not even going to give you a letter. I'm walking away. He could have done that. But he says the gospel is too important for me to walk away. So I'm going to show you what happens if there is no resurrection from the dead. He, he takes their position and he says, I'm going to give you the implications if you don't believe in the resurrection. That is a powerful way to exploit and expose false teaching and reinforce the gospel at the same time. Take the objection and then explain where it goes so that you can give the truth. Let's have a look at the next slide. Paul gives 11 consequences in our passage of what happens if there is no resurrection from the dead. Look at the first one. The first one says that the gospel will be emptied of its contents since the whole gospel depends on the resurrection. The whole section, verses 1 to 15, is all about what is of first importance that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So if there's no resurrection, you empty the gospel of all its contents, you totally undo everything that Paul has just said. And what's worse, the scriptures cannot be trusted because they speak all about the resurrection. If it's not true, you can throw your Bible away. Another thing that Paul says is a dead Christ, in verse 14, means a dead gospel. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. It means that Jesus was only a leader, a standout leader in the community, a bright star who flashed for three years, and then that's it, dead, gone. If there's no resurrection, that's all Jesus was. And then he says, our preaching is empty. No resurrection, no content to the gospel, no power to change people's lives without Christ's resurrection, and the gospel is only words. Another thing Paul says in verse 14 is your faith is useless. It's empty, it's futile. You've put your hope in something that's not true. And you believed a lie if there's no resurrection. What a sorry state to be in, to be deceived and without hope. He says in verse 15, More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. That means if there's no resurrection, we're false witnesses because we've said that Christ is risen from the dead. What's even worse is we make God out to be a liar because we said we are God's witnesses. Verse 17, another consequence. He says, but if Christ has been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Our sins will stand against us and condemn us because no one has taken them away and will be forever guilty if there is no resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, verse 18, he says, your fellow believers who have died and have perished are lost forever. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, anyone who's died in Christ, you will never see them again if there's no resurrection What sort of hope would that be if you attended a funeral? 
that you'll never ever see a person alive again in the next life. Verse 19, if Christ is a fading hope for this life only, we have been deluded. Our hope is a vapor and it's just evaporated if there's no resurrection. Verse 29, I won't go into the details of why Paul says, but look at his logic. Why have people bothered being baptized for the dead if they stay dead? Get the logic. Why would you baptize a dead person if they stay dead? What difference is it going to make to a dead person? Why bother baptizing the dead? That's what Paul says. In verse 30 to 32, he says, Why would we go through danger to defend the resurrection if it wasn't true? Why bother with trials and hardship and suffering for Christ? We should have taken the easy road. And then he says in verse 32b, we might as well be Epicurean. Today you can go to shops and still buy a brand called Epicurean. Usually it's cucumbers, pickled cucumbers or something like that. But Epicurean goes right back to this first century and their slogan was, live it up for tomorrow we're dead. And that's how so many people today actually live with this first century heresy. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. There's only the present to live for if there's no resurrection. Who cares? Enjoy it or end it. Imagine where that philosophy leads you. Next slide. For such people, I must have missed one somewhere. Um, anyway, uh, for such people who think this at the last day when Jesus comes, they'll be in for a hell of a shock. A hell of a shock. And it's, it's like this. You can make a little change with some wrong thinking, there's no resurrection, and you think it doesn't matter, well, it has great effect. And I'll give you an illustration. If you want to get your breakfast cereal out on the table, get your nice cornflakes or rice bubbles or muesli, whatever you have, but just add a little poison. Only a little bit of poison. It's not going to matter, is it? It does. It will kill you. So a little bit of poison, a little bit of error, makes everything unfold to be untrue. So do you still want to believe in Jesus, Paul says, and yet claim there is no resurrection from the dead? Well, that's no gospel. It's no hope. Can you see the fallacy of it all? Now we come to that slide, the second one. Thank you there. Great. But if Christ has been raised... This is a, a super question. But if Christ has been raised, what are the consequences? Well, first of all, see what Paul says um, in verses 5 and 6. He says that when it came to the resurrection, he says that Jesus, verse 5, appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most whom are still living. In other words, you can go and talk to them and ask them though some have fallen asleep. So Christ has been raised from the dead. There are many, many witnesses. Don't let anyone ever tell you that Christianity is irrational. This is rational proof that Jesus, who lived and died and rose again, was seen by many, many witnesses who could tell you the truth. You see, God loves to give us credible proofs there's no need to doubt what he says. 
And then look at another consequence of Christ being raised, verses 20 and 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. And then verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits. So what are the first fruits? Any of you who are gardeners, who've got fruit trees, now at this time of the year, you see buds and fruit coming. For some people, you've already probably tasted your fresh, crisp cherries. Other people have got early apricots that you've already eaten or late apricots that are still coming. But you see, when you go to that tree, you look for that first ripe one if you can beat the birds and you get that first fruit and then you can say the rest are all coming. Well, that's the concept. We see that the divine order is Jesus first and later it's our turn to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Can I stress that? You'll be raised from the dead, never to die again. Think about that. What a glorious hope that we can be with Jesus and all the people of God forever and ever. And Christ's resurrection guarantees our glorious resurrection. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam came and he brought death. And Jesus, the second Adam, brought life, not death, into the world. The next slide. I think we have to go through a couple here. So God has given us credible proofs. Go through the next one, please. Yep. His resurrection guarantees ours. Now we're into this next point. Look what Paul says in verses 24 to 26. And when I was pondering on this, I could hardly contain myself. Look what it says. Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I have lots of pictures on my computer. I save all my photos to hard drive and I've got a display. And all 22,000 photos go through and they roll. And every now and then I see the photo of my mum in her coffin and I see my dad being buried by us brothers and I think about this passage the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is powerful. And that is what Jesus did. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But there's more to it. Because this is one of the most glorious statements in Scripture of Christ's cosmic victory. This is where it's all headed. This is the plan of God. That Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, all the evil powers, all the dominions that are against God will be destroyed and he will also conquer death. This is the big plan, brothers and sisters. This is the end point of history. This is where Christ's enemies are subdued right to the last one, even death. Now that gives me hope in this world that no enemy can stand against us. The kingdom of Jesus is earned and paid for by his blood on the cross and his resurrection 
And when he's finished, he hands it over to God and he says, Father, mission accomplished. How do you respond to that? I say glory to God the Father. Glory to God the Son. Glory to God the Spirit. Great God, three in one, forever praised and worshipped in the new heavens and the new earth. Notice what Paul has done in this passage. He's taken us from the personal present to the cosmic future. I, I love that idea. Takes us from the personal present to the cosmic future. And he wants us to step back and see the whole plan. It's magnificent. The next slide. The last enemy to be destroyed before Jesus comes back is death. Christ defeated death by rising from the dead. But you'll ask me a question, and I ask this question, but we all still die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. Death is a fearsome enemy. But when Christ returns, death will be abolished forever. And Paul makes that into a victorious claim at the end of this passage in verses 55 to 57. Have a look at it with me. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the third point we're up to is some implications. Implications for you and me and everyone else. And next slide, please. There's a whole lot of things that I want to really skip through quickly. But verse 33 says, Do not be misled or led astray. And this is where we ask the question, friends, which voices in this world get your attention? Please think about it. Which voices get your attention? What shapes your decisions? Paul says, do not be misled or led astray. Don't allow yourselves to be misled by what others are saying. Stick to what God has revealed in his word and revealed in his son. Verse 34, he says, be sober. In brief, that means come under the right influence. Come under the right influence. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Take your bearings from the gospel. Paul says, come back to your senses. Verse 34b, he says, and stop sinning. I found that was an interesting insertion. Stop sinning. You see, Paul says, failing to think clearly and soberly has consequences. It corrupts good character. Verse 33. If there is no resurrection and there is therefore no judgment, have a guess what? Sin will be unrestrained. There's no day of accountability. You'll get away with it. So sin is promoted and you can do anything you like. That's how wrong behavior takes you. You've only got this life to live. Who cares? That's what secular atheism says. And think of where that leaves you. We see it all around us. Enjoy it or end it. In verse 58, Paul shows the difference that believing the resurrection of Christ's victory makes. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, the risen Christ is our hope now. 
That's why we can work hard for the Lord. Because tomorrow we will die, but we'll live again. It's worth working hard. It's another take on verse 32, isn't it? Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let us work hard for the Lord for tomorrow we live. So what we do in this life for the Lord actually counts into the next. Don't you want to hear the master's voice saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have followed me and I honour you. There is a point to living sacrificially for the gospel. There is a point to living sacrificially so that others might hear the word and be saved. We live for God's approval. How do you want to live now in the light of Christ's return? One of the prophets said it very succinctly. Act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. And the consequence of Christ's resurrection for all who believe is that you don't have to wait for the new life. The new life is already now. You live in this hope. There is the Jesus, the living Jesus in you. Don't think it's all future. My hope is now. I'm alive now and I will live forever. My sins are forgiven. Jesus has conquered the grave. You see, if it's so true, why don't we show it in our joy and tell others? It makes everything we do now for Christ and his kingdom meaningful and full of purpose. Imagine the joy that you have already received or you will receive when you see a friend who's heard the gospel from you and now believes and worships the Lord. The joy of seeing a sinner saved. That is fantastic. A new life. All the suffering, a word we don't like to use in our culture, all the suffering for the cause of the gospel because we are investing in what lasts. Look at how Jesus said it in Matthew 6. But seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Our conclusion. The resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in history. The cross was important. It absolutely is But I tell you, a cross without a resurrection is no hope. If Jesus died and was buried and that's it, no gospel. He had to rise again from the dead for the gospel to be true, for God to approve of the sacrifice of Jesus. And when the grave was broken open, so was the way to God. The cross's victory is declared by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians... That makes us feel amazed, eternally grateful for the miracle, the miracle of our Saviour rising from the dead. We're forgiven. We're redeemed because he conquered the grave. And so we have this hope and confidence ourselves that if God raised Jesus from the dead, have a guess what? He's going to raise you from the dead if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll raise you to a new life to never die and to live forever in his presence. And can I just ask you to gaze into heaven? I don't know if heaven's there or there or there because we're just a planet in the universe. But 
but see heaven opened. See the throne of God. See the billions of Christians who believed in Jesus around the throne. Imagine the worship and the glory that's happening there. And that will be yours and mine for eternity. The church before all ages to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is a strong and a beautiful hope. Let's take that message into the world. Amen. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, uh, this is a glorious teaching and a glorious gospel. Thank you for men like the Apostle Paul, who were once persecutors of the faith, confronted by the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, changed forever by seeing the resurrected Jesus. And Paul says it came to him as to one untimely born. He was at the end of the line after the apostles. And Lord Jesus, we believe that you rose from the dead. There are many, many witnesses. It's recorded in the scriptures, it's recorded in history, and it's recorded in our hearts by your testimony, Holy Spirit. And so we pray that we'll be bold, have courage and hope to speak about life and death with hope into a culture that has despair and death as its motto. Lord Jesus, thank you for this truth. Help us to delve into it more. Help us to see the reasoning in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians and make it part of our gospel proclamation and gospel defense. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.